Section 18 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Maestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadette Perrin. Chapters 28 to 42 of Caesar. Now, Caesar had long ago decided to put down Pompey, just as, of course, Pompey had also decided to put Caesar down. For now that Crassus, who was only waiting for the issue of their struggle to engage the victor, had perished among the Parthians, it remained for him who would be greatest to put down him who was, and for him who was greatest, if he would not be put down, to take off in time the man he feared. This fear had only recently come upon Pompey, who till then despised Caesar, feeling that it was no hard task to put down again the man whom he himself had raised on high. But Caesar had from the outset formed this design, and like an athlete had removed himself to a great distance from his antagonists, and by exercising himself in the Gallic Wars, had practiced his troops, and increased his fame, lifting himself by his achievements to a height where he could vie with the successes of Pompey. He laid hold of pretexts, which were furnished partly by Pompey himself, and partly by the times and the evil state of government at Rome, by reason of which candidates for office set up counting tables in public and shamelessly bribed the multitudes, while the people went down into the forum under pay, contending in behalf of their paymaster, not with votes, but with bows and arrows, swords and slings. Often, too, they would defile the roster with blood and corpses before they separated, leaving the city to anarchy, like a ship drifting about without a steersman, so that men of understanding were content if matters issued in nothing worse for them than monarchy, after such madness and so great a tempest. And there were many who actually dared to say in public that nothing but monarchy could now cure the diseases of the state, and that this remedy ought to be adopted when offered by the gentlest of physicians hinting at Pompey, and when even Pompey, although in words he affected to decline the honor, in fact did more than anyone else to affect his appointment as dictator. Cato saw through his design and persuaded the Senate to appoint him sole consul, solacing him with a more legal monarchy that he might not force his way to the dictatorship. They also voted him additional time in which to hold his provinces, and he had two, Spain and all Africa, which he managed by sending legates thither and maintaining armies there, for which he received from the public treasury a thousand talents annually. Chapter 29. Consequently, Caesar canvassed by proxy for a consulship, and likewise for an extension of time in which to hold his own provinces. At first, then, Pompey held his peace, while Marcellus and Lentulus opposed these plans. They hated Caesar on other grounds, and went beyond all bounds in their efforts to bring dishonor and abuse upon him, 
for instance the inhabitants of novum comum a colony recently established by caesar in gaul were deprived of citizenship by them and marcellus while he was consul beat with rods a senator of novum comum who had come to rome telling him besides that he put these marks upon him to prove that he was not a roman and bade him go back and show them to caesar but after the consulship of marcellus caesar having now sent his gallic wealth for all those in public life to draw from in copious streams and having freed curio the tribune from many debts and having given paulus the consul fifteen hundred talents out of which he adorned the forum with the basilica footnote the basilica of pauli aemilii called also regia pauli it took the place of the basilica aemilia at fulvia erected in 179 bc and footnote a famous monument erected in place of the fulvia under these circumstances pompey took fright at the coalition and openly now by his own efforts and those of his friends tried to have a successor appointed to caesar in his government and sent a demand to him for the return of the soldiers whom he had lent him for his gallic contests caesar sent the soldiers back after making a present to each man of two hundred and fifty drachmas but the officers who brought these men to pompey spread abroad among the multitude stories regarding caesar which were neither reasonable nor true and ruined pompey himself with vain hopes they told him that caesar's army yearned for him and that while he was with difficulty controlling affairs in the city owing to the disease of envy which festered in the body politic the forces in gaul were ready to serve him and had but to cross into italy when they would at once be on his side so obnoxious to them had caesar become by reason of the multitude of his campaigns and so suspicious of him were they made by their fear of a monarchy all this fed pompey's vanity and he neglected to provide himself with soldiers as though he had no fears while with speeches and resolutions of the senate he was carrying the day against caesar as he supposed although he was merely getting measures rejected about which caesar cared not nay we are told that one of the centurions sent to rome by caesar as he stood in front of the senate house and learned that the senate would not give caesar an extension of his term of command slapped the handle of his sword and said but this will give it chapter thirty however the demands which came from caesar certainly had a striking semblance of fairness he demanded namely that if he himself laid down his arms pompey should do the same and that both thus become private men should find what favor they could with their fellow-citizens arguing that if they took away his forces from him but confirmed pompey in the possession of his they would be accusing one of seeking a tyranny and making the other a tyrant when curio laid these proposals before the people in behalf of caesar he was loudly applauded and some actually cast garlands of flowers upon him as if he were a victorious athlete antony too who was a tribune brought before the people a letter of caesar's on these matters which he had received 
and read it aloud in defiance of the consuls. But in the Senate, Scipio, the father-in-law of Pompey, footnote, Pompey had married Cornelia, the young widow of Publius Crassus, end footnote, introduced a motion that if by a fixed day Caesar did not lay down his arms, he should be declared a public enemy. And when the consuls put the question whether Pompey should dismiss his soldiers, and again whether Caesar should, very few senators voted for the first, and all but a few for the second. But when Antony again demanded that both should give up their commands, all with one accord assented. Scipio, however, made violent opposition, and Lentulus, the consul, cried out that against a robber there was need of arms, not votes. Whereupon the Senate broke up, and the senators put on the garb of mourning in view of the dissension. Chapter 31 but presently letters came from Caesar in which he appeared to take a more moderate position, for he agreed to surrender everything else, but demanded that Cisalpine Gaul and Illyricum, together with two legions, should be given him until he stood for his second consulship. Cicero the orator, too, who had just returned from Cilicia and was busy with a reconciliation, tried to mollify Pompey who yielded everything else, but insisted on taking away Caesar's soldiers. Cicero also tried to persuade the friends of Caesar to compromise and come to a settlement on the basis of the provinces mentioned and only 6,000 soldiers, and Pompey was ready to yield and grant so many. Lentulus, the consul, however, would not let him, but actually heaped insults upon Anthony and Curio, and drove them disgracefully from the Senate, thus himself contriving for Caesar the most specious of his pretexts, and the one by means of which he most of all incited his soldiers, showing them men of repute and high office, who had fled the city on hired carts and in the garb of slaves, for thus they had arrayed themselves in their fear and stolen out of Rome. Chapter 32 now Caesar had with him not more than three hundred horsemen and five thousand legionaries, for the rest of his army had been left beyond the Alps, and was to be brought up by those whom he had sent for the purpose. He saw, however, that the beginning of his enterprise and its initial step did not require a large force at present, but must take advantage of the golden moment by showing amazing boldness and speed since he could strike terror into his enemies by an unexpected blow more easily than he could overwhelm them by an attack in full force. He therefore ordered his centurions and other officers, taking their swords only, and without the rest of their arms, to occupy Ariminum, a large city of Gaul, avoiding commotion and bloodshed as far as possible, and he entrusted this force to Hortensius. He himself spent the day in public, attending and watching the exercises of gladiators. But a little before evening he bathed and dressed and went into the banqueting hall. Here he held brief converse with those who had been invited to supper, and just as it was getting dark, rose and went away, after addressing courteously most of his guests and bidding them await his return. To a few of his friends, however, he had previously given directions to follow him, not all by the same route, but some by one way and some by another. 
he himself mounted one of his hired carts and drove at first along another road then turned toward Araminum. when he came to the river which separates cisalpine gaul from the rest of italy it is called the rubicon he began to reflect now that he drew nearer to the fearful step and was agitated by the magnitude of his ventures he checked his speed then halting in his course he communed with himself a long time in silence as his resolution wavered back and forth and his purpose then suffered change after change for a long time too he discussed his perplexities with his friends who were present among whom was asinius pollio estimating the great evils for all mankind which would follow their passage of the river and the wide fame of it which they would leave to posterity but finally with a sort of passion as if abandoning calculation and casting himself upon the future and uttering the phrase with which men usually prelude their plunge into desperate and daring fortunes let the die be cast he hastened to cross the river and going at full speed now for the rest of the time before daybreak he dashed into Araminum and took possession of it it is said moreover that on the night before he crossed the river he had an unnatural dream he thought namely that he was having incestuous intercourse with his own mother footnote according to suetonius caesar had this dream while he was quaestor in spain the interpreters of dreams told him that his mother meant the earth the universal parent which was to become subject to him End footnote. chapter thirty three after the seizure of Araminum, as if the war had opened with broad gates to cover the whole earth and sea alike and the laws of the state were confounded along with the boundaries of the province one would not have thought that men and women as at other times were hurrying through italy in consternation but that the very cities had risen up in flight and were rushing one through another while rome herself deluged as it were by the inhabitants of the surrounding towns who were fleeing from their homes neither readily obeying a magistrate nor listening to the voice of reason in the surges of a mighty sea narrowly escaped being overturned by her own internal agitations for conflicting emotions and violent disturbances prevailed everywhere those who rejoiced did not keep quiet but in many places as was natural in a great city encountered those who were in fear and distress and being filled with confidence as to the future came into strife with them while pompey himself who was terror-stricken was assailed on every side being taken to task by some for having strengthened caesar against himself and the supreme power of the state and denounced by others for having permitted lentulus to insult caesar when he was ready to yield and was offering reasonable terms of settlement favonius bade him stamp on the ground for once in a boastful speech to the senate he told them to take no trouble or anxious thought about preparations for the war since when it came he had but to stamp upon the earth to fill italy with armies however even then pompey's forces were more numerous than caesar's but no one would suffer him to exercise his own judgment 
and so, under the influence of many false and terrifying reports, believing that the war was already close at hand and prevailed everywhere, he gave way, was swept along with the universal tide, issued an edict declaring a state of anarchy, and forsook the city, commanding the senate to follow, and forbidding anyone to remain who preferred country and freedom to tyranny. Chapter 34 Accordingly, the consuls fled, without even making the sacrifices usual before departure. Most of the senators also fled, after seizing, in a sort of robbery, whatever came to hand of their own possessions, as though it were the property of others. Some, too, who before this had vehemently espoused the cause of Caesar, were now frightened out of their wits and were carried along, when there was no need of it, by the sweep of the great tide. But most pitiful was the sight of the city, now that so great a tempest was bearing down upon her, carried along like a ship abandoned of her helmsmen, to dash against whatever lay in her path. Still, although their removal was so pitiful a thing, for the sake of Pompey, men considered exile to be their country, and abandoned Rome with the feeling that it was Caesar's camp. For even Labienus, one of Caesar's greatest friends, who had been his legate, and had fought most zealously with him in all his Gallic wars, now ran away from him and came to Pompey. But Caesar sent to Labienus his money and his baggage. Against Domitius, however, who was holding Corfinium with thirty cohorts under his command, he marched and pitched his camp nearby. Domitius, despairing of his enterprise, asked his physician, who was a slave, for a poison, and taking what was given him, drank it, intending to die. But after a little, hearing that Caesar showed most wonderful clemency towards his prisoners, he bewailed his fate and blamed the rashness of his purpose. Then his physician bade him be of good cheer, since what he had drunk was a sleeping potion and not deadly. Whereupon Domitius rose up overjoyed and went to Caesar, the pledge of whose right hand he received, only to desert him and go back to Pompey. When tidings of these things came to Rome, men were made more cheerful, and some of the fugitives turned back. Chapter 35 Caesar took over the troops of Domitius, as well as all the other levies of Pompey which he surprised in the various cities. Then, since his forces were already numerous and formidable, he marched against Pompey himself. Pompey, however, did not await his approach, but fled to Brundisium, sent the consuls before him with an army to Dyrrhachium, and shortly afterwards, as Caesar drew near, sailed off himself, as shall be set forth circumstantially in his life. Caesar wished to pursue him at once, but was destitute of ships. So he turned back to Rome, having in sixty days, and without bloodshed, become master of all Italy. He found the city more tranquil than he was expecting, and many senators in it. With these, therefore, he conferred in a gentle and affable manner, inviting them even to send a deputation to Pompey, proposing suitable terms of agreement. But no one would listen to him, either because they feared Pompey, whom they had abandoned, 
or because they thought that Caesar did not mean what he said, but was indulging in specious talk. When the tribune Metellus tried to prevent Caesar's taking money from the reserve funds of the state, and cited certain laws, Caesar said that arms and laws had not the same season. But if thou art displeased at what is going on, for the present get out of the way, since war has no use for free speech, when, however, I have come to terms and laid down my arms, then thou shalt come before the people with thy harangues. And in saying this I waive my own just rights, for thou art mine, thou and all of the faction hostile to me, whom I have caught. After this speech to Metellus, Caesar walked towards the door of the treasury, and when the keys were not to be found, he sent for smiths and ordered them to break in the door. Metellus once more opposed him and was commended by some for so doing. But Caesar, raising his voice, threatened to kill him if he did not cease his troublesome interference. And thou surely knowest, young man, said he, that it is more unpleasant for me to say this than to do it. Then Metellus, in consequence of this speech, went off in a fright, and henceforth everything was speedily and easily furnished to Caesar for the war. Chapter 36 So he made an expedition into Spain, having resolved first to drive out from there Afranius and Varro, Pompey's legates, and bring their forces there and the provinces into his power, and then to march against Pompey, leaving not an enemy in his rear. And though his life was often in peril from ambuscades, and his army most of all from hunger, he did not cease from pursuing, challenging, and besieging the men until he had made himself by main force master of their camps and their forces. The leaders, however, made their escape to Pompey. Chapter 37 When Caesar came back to Rome, Piso, his father-in-law, urged him to send a deputation to Pompey with proposals for a settlement. But Isaracus, to please Caesar, opposed the project. So having been made dictator by the Senate, he brought home exiles, restored to civic rights the children of those who had suffered in the time of Sulla, relieved the burdens of the debtor class by a certain adjustment of interest, took in hand a few other public measures of like character, and within eleven days abdicated the sole power, had himself declared consul with Servilius Isauricus, and entered upon his campaign. The rest of his forces he passed by in a forced march, and with six hundred picked horsemen and five legions, at the time of the winter solstice, in the earliest part of January, footnote, 48 B.C., the Roman calendar at this time was much in advance of the solar seasons. End footnote. This month answers nearly to the Athenian Poseidon. Put to sea, and after crossing the Ionian Gulf, took Oricum and Apollonia, and sent his transports back again to Brindisium for the soldiers who had been belated on their march. These, as long as they were on the road, since they were now past their physical prime and worn out with their multitudinous wars, murmured against caesar whither pray and to what end will this man bring us hurrying us about and treating us like tireless and lifeless things 
even a sword gets tired out with smiting and shield and breastplate are spared a little after so long a time of service will not even our wounds then convince caesar that he commands mortal men and that we are mortal in the endurance of pain and suffering surely the wintry season and the occasion of a storm at sea not even a god can constrain yet this man takes risks as though he were not pursuing but flying from enemies with such words as these they marched in a leisurely way to brindisium but when they got there and found that caesar had put to sea they quickly changed their tone and reviled themselves as traitors to the imperator they reviled their officers too for not having quickened their march then sitting on the cliffs they looked off toward the open sea and epirus watching for the ships which were to carry them across to their commander chapter thirty eight at apollonia since the force which he had with him was not a match for the enemy and the delay of his troops on the other side caused him perplexity and distress caesar conceived the dangerous plan of embarking in a twelve-oared boat without any one's knowledge and going over to brindisium though the sea was encompassed by such large armaments of the enemy at night accordingly after disguising himself in the dress of a slave he went on board threw himself down as one of no account and kept quiet while the river aus was carrying the boat down towards the sea the early morning breeze which at that time usually made the mouth of the river calm by driving back the waves was quelled by a strong wind which blew from the sea during the night the river therefore chafed against the inflow of the sea and the opposition of its billows and was rough being beaten back with a great din and violent eddies so that it was impossible for the master of the boat to force his way along he therefore ordered the sailors to come about in order to retrace his course but caesar perceiving this disclosed himself took the master of the boat by the hand who was terrified at sight of him and said come good man be bold and fear not thou carriest caesar and caesar's fortune in thy boat the sailors forgot the storm and laying to their oars tried with all alacrity to force their way down the river but since it was impossible after taking much water and running great hazard at the mouth of the river caesar very reluctantly suffered the captain to put about when he came back the soldiers met him in throngs finding much fault and sore displeased with him because he did not believe that even with them alone he was able to conquer but was troubled and risked his life for the sake of the absent as though distrusting those who were present chapter thirty nine after this antony put in from brindisium with his forces and caesar was emboldened to challenge pompey to battle pompey was well posted and drew ample supplies both from land and sea while caesar had no great abundance at first and afterwards was actually hard pressed for want of provisions but his soldiers dug up a certain root mixed it with milk and ate it once too they made loaves of it and running up to the enemy's outposts threw the loaves inside or tossed them to one another adding by way of comment that as long as the earth produced such roots they would not stop besieging pompey 
Pompey, however, would not allow either the loaves or these words to reach the main body of his army, for his soldiers were dejected, fearing the ferocity and hardiness of their enemies, who were like wild beasts in their eyes. There were constant skirmishings about the fortifications of Pompey, and in all of them Caesar got the better, except one, where there was a great rout of his men, and he was in danger of losing his camp. For when Pompey attacked, not one of Caesar's men stood his ground, but the moats were filled with the slain, and others were falling at their own ramparts and walls, whither they had been driven in headlong flight. And though Caesar met the fugitives and tried to turn them back, he availed nothing. Nay, when he tried to lay hold of the standards, the bearers threw them away, so that the enemy captured thirty-two of them. Caesar himself, too, narrowly escaped being killed, for as a tall and sturdy man was running away past him, he laid his hand upon him and bade him stay and face about upon the enemy. And the fellow, full of panic at the threatening danger, raised his sword to smite Caesar. But before he could do so, Caesar's shield-bearer lopped off his arm at the shoulder. So completely had Caesar given up his cause for lost, that when Pompey, either from excessive caution or by some chance, did not follow up his great success, but withdrew after he had shut up the fugitives within their entrenchments, Caesar said to his friends as he left them, Today victory had been with the enemy, if they had had a victor in command. Then going by himself to his tent and lying down, he spent that most distressful of all nights, in vain reflections, convinced that he had shown bad generalship. For while a fertile country lay waiting for him, and the prosperous cities of Macedonia and Thessaly, he had neglected to carry the war thither, and had posted himself here by the sea, which his enemies controlled with their fleets, being thus held in siege by lack of provisions, rather than besieging with his arms. Thus his despondent thoughts of the difficulty and perplexity of his situation kept him tossing upon his couch, and in the morning he broke camp, resolved to lead his army into Macedonia against Scipio for he would then either draw Pompey after him to a place where he would give battle without drawing his supplies, as he now did from the sea, or Scipio would be left alone, and he would overwhelm him. Chapter 40 This emboldened the soldiers of Pompey, and the leaders by whom he was surrounded, to keep close to Caesar, whom they thought defeated and in flight. For Pompey himself was cautious about hazarding a battle for so great a stake, and since he was most excellently provided with everything necessary for a long war, he thought it best to wear out and quench the vigor of the enemy, which must be short-lived. For the best fighting men in Caesar's army had experience, it is true, and a daring which was irresistible in combat. But what with their long marches and frequent encampments and siege warfare and night watches, they were beginning to give out by reason of age, and were too unwieldy for labor, having lost their ardor from weakness. At that time, too, a kind of pestilential disease, occasioned by the strangeness of their diet, was said to be prevalent in Caesar's army. And what was most important of all, 
since caesar was neither strong in funds nor well supplied with provisions it was thought that within a short time his army would break up of itself chapter forty one for these reasons pompey did not wish to fight but cato was the only one to commend his course and this from a desire to spare the lives of his fellow-citizens for when he saw even those of the enemy who had fallen in the battle to the number of a thousand he burst into tears muffled up his head and went away all the rest however reviled pompey for trying to avoid a battle and sought to goad him on by calling him agamemnon and king of kings implying that he did not wish to lay aside his sole authority but plumed himself on having so many commanders dependent upon him and coming constantly to his tent and favonius affecting cato's boldness of speech complained like a madman because that year also they would be unable to enjoy the figs of tusculum because of pompey's love of command afranius too who had lately come from spain where he had shown bad generalship when accused of betraying his army for a bribe asked why they did not fight with the merchant who had bought the provinces from him driven on by all these importunities pompey reluctantly sought a battle and pursued caesar caesar accomplished most of his march with difficulty since no one would sell him provisions and everybody despised him on account of his recent defeat but after he had taken gomphi a city of thessaly he not only provided food for his soldiers but also relieved them of their disease unexpectedly for they fell in with plenty of wine and after drinking freely of it and then revelling and rioting on their march by means of their drunkenness they drove away and got rid of their trouble since they brought their bodies into a different habit chapter forty two but when both armies entered the plain of pharsalus and encamped there pompey's mind reverted again to its former reasoning and besides there befell him unlucky appearances and a vision in his sleep he dreamed namely that he saw himself in his theatre applauded by the romans those about him however were so confident and so hopefully anticipated the victory that domitius and Spinther and scipio disputed earnestly with one another over caesar's office of pontifex maximus and many sent agents to rome to hire and take possession of houses suitable for praetors and consuls assuming that they would immediately hold these offices after the war and most of all were his cavalry impatient for the battle since they had a splendid array of shining armor well-fed horses and handsome persons and were in high spirits too on account of their numbers which were seven thousand to caesar's one thousand the numbers of the infantry also were unequal since forty-five thousand were arrayed against twenty-two thousand end of section eighteen